Well, good morning. Thanks uh, for joining us. If this is your first time or one of your first times to come, I appreciate you stepping in. I know sometimes it's hard to come, play, to come to a place where you don't know people. If you're joining us online, again, I appreciate you doing that. Just a comment on the, the joke Christy made when she was pushing the goats. When somebody does that, sometimes it really gets my goat. <laughs> right off the cuff, people. Right off the cuff. There's a class we take in seminary, jokes before the sermon. I took it three times. I, I failed it the first two. So in the year 2000, Reed Hastings was the CEO of a startup streaming service named Netflix. Don't know if you've heard that. But he met with the CEO of Blockbuster, John Antioso, I think I've got his name pronounced correctly, to see if they could form a partnership. Well, the CEO of Blockbuster laughed him out of the office. Blockbuster was dominating the market in home movie watching. Why did they need a streaming service? Ten years later, Blockbuster was bankrupt. And Netflix had 20 million subscribers. What happened at Blockbuster? They got stuck in a very traditional understanding of how you watch a movie at home. You buy a CD and put it in, don't you know? That's the way people have always done it. And they couldn't hear, maybe there's something else you need to think about. Tradition bankrupted that company. I'm wondering, are we caught up in traditions religious, spiritual traditions that aren't necessarily biblical. And we're so tied to those traditions that they're, yes, bankrupting our time with Jesus, our intimacy with God. I want us to think about that today. So if you've got a Bible, if you'd open it to John chapter 5, we'll go verses 1 through 18, wrestling with this question, how does Jesus, how, what does Jesus Think about religious. How does Jesus view religious traditions? If you haven't been with us, we've been in the Gospel of John a while, maybe 8, 10, 12 weeks, something like that. What we understand is John uh, walked with Jesus for three years while Jesus was in public ministry, and he saw Jesus do all kind of stuff, and he heard Jesus claim to be the Son of God, like no person ever born of a woman. And he became convinced that Jesus was the Son of God. And so he wrote this gospel, and he, he doesn't pull any punches. John 20, verse 30 and 31. He said, I, I'm hoping that you'll read this and you'll come to the same conclusion I did. That Jesus is the Son of God, and, and that in believing in him, you can have eternal life. So we've looked at the gospel of John almost as John is a prosecuting attorney seeking to prove Jesus guilty of being the Son of God. And he's going to give us all kinds of human interactions that Jesus had, but he's also, in the course of that, going to give us seven signs that set him apart. And the first one was Jesus turned water into wine at a wedding. Second one, and Nate opened this up for us last week. If you didn't get a chance to be here, I encourage you to watch that sermon online. It was really good. But that was the second sign. Jesus heals a sick person at a distance. So John's making the case that Jesus is the Son of God. And it's in the midst of that that we pick up John 5, verse 1. It says, after these things, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Which feast? We don't know. 
After these things is um, puts in sequence, this is after Jesus healed the young man, but we don't know how much time has passed. We know Jesus is in Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, which is called Hebrew Bethesda, having five porticos. And there lay a multitude of those who were sick, blind, lame, and withered. Well, why would they be laying there? Some of this in your Bibles, some of your Bibles will be in brackets. It wasn't in the initial manuscripts, but it was added later. Um, it's an aside that explains why they're waiting there. Waiting for the moving of the waters, for an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred up the water. Whoever then first, after the stirring up of the water, stepped in was made well from whatever disease with which he was afflicted. So there's your legend. There's your tradition. Probably the, the waters got stirred because they were fed by an underground spring and somehow it came that if you, if you get in there for, first, you get healed. And man, people are buying the legend. They're, they're, they're all around there wanting to get well. Verse 5 says this. It introduces us to one man who's there. A man who was there was there who had been ill for 38 years. We're going to find out he's unable to walk. He's paraplegic. 38 years. Going there, hoping to get well. Again, there's no safety net. He probably begged, had a subsistence living, and, and man, he's, he's open to anything to get better. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been a long time in that condition, he said to him, do you wish to get well? Now, scholars spend all kinds of time thinking about, well, why? Why does Jesus ask this question? I mean, laying by the pool, yeah, he wants to get well. Why, why does he ask the question? Here's what I think makes the most sense to me. Sometimes you ask a question to help a person verbalize what it is they want. I think that's what Jesus is doing here. Do you, do you want to get well? Well, yeah, he does, but he's got a problem. Verse 7, the sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool. When the water is stirred up, while well, I am coming, another steps down before me. So, so you get the gig. I mean, they're, they're all there. They're waiting until it gets stirred, but it's first one in. And if you can't walk, man, you're going to lose every time. That, that's a no-win deal. I mean, that you're sitting there under those conditions shows how desperate you are. Well, the good news is Jesus has another plan for this guy to get well. And it doesn't involve stepping in the water and being the first one in. Here's his plan. Verse 8. Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your pallet, and walk. That's the plan. Now, you might ask, Andy, there's, there's a bunch of people around the pool. Why does Jesus pick this one guy to get up? And my answer is, I don't know. I don't know. Isn't that great? Aren't you glad I went to seminary? Knocked that right out of the park for you? This is the sovereign will of God. Why does he choose this guy and not the others? I don't know. But Jesus' credibility is again on the line. He said, pick up your pallet and walk. I hope this guy can do it because if not, Jesus is going to look bad. How's it play out? Verse 9. Immediately the man became well and picked up his pallet and began to walk. Can you imagine? 38 years laying there unable to walk, then bang, in an instant he can walk. Is that not worth celebrating? I mean, you may not know this guy, but can you be happy for him? 
He was born into this, and all of a sudden, he can walk. Woo! I mean, that's, that's worth... But the celebration comes to a real quick stop. And there's an abrupt turn in this passage in the middle of verse 9. What could rain on this parade? Well, here's what rains on the parade. Now, it was the Sabbath on that day. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. The Sabbath. If you've read the Gospels, you know. If you haven't read, you need to know. I mean, Jesus had all kinds of conflict on the Sabbath with the religious leaders. And what he kept coming back to is, I'm Lord of the Sabbath. I set this Sabbath up. I'm going to tell you what goes and what doesn't go on the Sabbath. And the religious leaders have it all messed up. Well, what specifically? Well, we'll talk about that in verse 10. So the Jews were saying to the man who was cured, it is the Sabbath and it's not permissible for you to carry your pallet. So anyway, whoa, 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 whoa. the Sabbath, it's one of the top ten. It's one of the big ten, ten commandments. Is Jesus violating the ten commandments? Nope. Nope, 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 nope. He's not suggesting that. But what he is violating is the prohibitions that the religious leaders have set up that describe the Sabbath. The Sabbath was given, so on the seventh day, whatever job you do for a vocation, you step back and you rest. It was a statement of faith. Remember, Israel was an agrarian culture, and it's on the seventh day, I'm not going to farm. I'm going to believe God's going to provide, and I'm going to rest. That's, that's God's rhythm for life. When we were in Russia, back as missionaries, you know, we had read that Stalin went to a 10-day work week. Nine days off, nine days on, one day off. And you only found out? Productivity dropped. Six out of seven was maximum productivity. That's God's thing. You step back. We need to follow that. Take a day off. But... Where they got in trouble is, they said, well, well we needed to define what's work, because you could be taken off from your job and you could still be working. So let me put it in terms we might understand. The elders get together and say on the Sabbath, you know, you're going to go home, Sunday's the Sabbath, and you're going to go home and you're going to eat lunch in your house. I mean, it's okay, it's okay if you microwave something, but if you cook something, that's work, you can't do that. That's a violation of Sabbath. It's, it's May, and you want to cut your grass? Well, that's, that's kind of working. Can I cut the grass? If you've got a riding mower, you can do it. You've got a push mower. No, that's too much work. It's December, and it snows on Saturday night into Sunday morning. Can you scoop your walk? Well, if it's under two inches, okay, that's not too much work. But if it goes over two inches, that's work. You'll just have to sit that one out. Do you see how ridiculous this gets? We're going to take a principle from the Scripture, and we're going to add to it, and we're going to define it. That, friends, is problematic. That causes all kinds of trouble. And it's causing trouble here, because one of the prohibitions is you're not supposed to take one thing from one place to another, and this guy is carrying his pallet. Oh, no. Verse 11, he's been called out, carrying your pallet. But he answered them, he who made me well was the one who said to me, pick up your pallet and walk. So I'm just doing what I was told by this guy who healed me. And I thought 38 years being sick, he, he had some authority. 
Verse 12, they ask him, who is the man who said to you, pick up your pallet and walk? They're far more concerned about somebody who's inciting others to break their law than the one who breaks it. Because that's a measure of control. That's a measure of authority. If I'm the religious leader and, and I've got both civil and spiritual authority and I can get you on something, well, you, you better back down on one of my prohibitions. Now you've got somebody agitating, stirring it up. Who is this guy? We want to find him out and find him fast. But the man who was healed did not know who it was. For Jesus had slipped away while there was a crowd in that place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, Behold, you've become well. Do not sin anymore so that nothing worse happens to you. So, Andy, is, is Jesus making a correlation between this guy's sickness and his sin? Yeah, he is. He is. So is that across the board? Every time I get a sickness, every time something bad happens, it's because of sin? No. No. A few weeks we'll get to John 9. Guy's born blind. In verses nine, chapter 9, verses 1 through 3, they'll say to Jesus, hey, who sinned that this guy was born blind? Was it him or his parents? And Jesus said, neither one of them sinned. This happened that God might be glorified. So what do we take from that? Let's not trifle with sin. There are consequences. And there are times that we will face some of those consequences in this life. So if, if you and I are dabbling in sin, let's move on from that. Let's turn from that. That being said, let's not assume every sickness, every job loss, every bad circumstance is, is a direct correlation to something we've, been, that's something that's, we've done or our sin. But now the guy knows. The guy knows who it is that healed him. You think it's kind of like, I'd, I'd like to follow that guy. I'd like to worship him. But that's not what he does. Verse 15. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. Talk about throwing somebody under the bus, huh? Why, why would you do that? Why would you not worship the guy who healed you? Because I think he's more fearful of the Jewish leadership than he is of God. I want to be right with this guy, and I don't want to be, and they want to know who what it is, and I don't want to be on their, I want to be on their good side. And, and again, they have, they have a lot of control. They have civil and spiritual authority. So let me be right with them by telling who it was. The result, verse 16, for this reason the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. It's an ongoing conflict. Jesus answers, verse 17, my father's working until now, and I myself am working. That's quite a statement. What he's saying is God the Father, he works on the Sabbath. I mean, he set that up for us. I mean, he's sustaining the world. He's keeping things going as God does. And I'm just like him. I, I, I'm working too. Make no mistake, Jesus is saying I'm one with God. That's why I, I, I work on the Sabbath. I, I set this up, and I'm not under those. You are, and I set up for your good. Take a day off every seven. The result, verse 18, for this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, but here's the big thing. He was also calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. You know, people will say, Andy, the Son of God, does that, that mean Jesus was something lesser than God? Well, no, I, I would point you to John 5, 18. The understanding is in calling him God the Father and calling himself the Son, he's equal with God. He's just trying to capture a human term that describes the intimacy, the oneness that he shares with the Father. So, 
I'm sure Jesus knew of the 39 prohibitions. Don't carry something on the Sabbath. Don't move it from one place to another. And he saw this guy had been there 38 years, and he thought, you know, if I, if I, if I heal him, whew, it's going to cause a stink. Maybe I'll, back, maybe I'll wait till Monday. Maybe, maybe I'll wait till the next day or Sunday, whatever it would be. Maybe I'll wait till the top, just come back. No, 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 no. No, that's not how Jesus rolled. I'm not going to let those human traditions and those human rules and those regulations they set up stop me from working. I'm not going to be limited by them. So we're asking this question, how does Jesus view religious tradition? Here's what I'd say. Jesus doesn't let religious traditions keep him from working. Jesus does not let religious tradition keep him from working. Now, You need to know this attitude of Jesus, this asserting his authority over the Sabbath, eventually cost him his life. Man, they had control with their rules and regulations. He said, no, I don't think so. And please note, Jesus isn't breaking the Ten Commandments. He's breaking one of the rules they wrote about that. He's not interested in human rules. He is interested in the Word of God. Now, we would never do that, would we? Take a principle from the Word of God and, and make up rules by which we could classify and judge other people? The Bible says we're supposed to be set apart, right? We're supposed to be in the world, but not of the world. So, of course, that means you can't go to this kind of movie, this rating of a movie, or you can't go to the restaurant, or you can't go to a place that serves this and that and that. And if you do, you're... We just did what the Pharisees did, right? We took a principle and we added some prohibition. We added some rules. And we judge people by that. Jesus ain't interested in our rules. The Bible's real clear. We're supposed to live generously and sacrificially. So that means you need to drive a car that's uh, valued under this amount, right? Or you can't live in this much square footage, or you can't have those kind of countertops. And all I saw, I saw the pictures on Facebook of the vacation you took, and somebody that's a Christian shouldn't be spending that extravagantly on a vacation. See what we're doing? Setting up, taking a principle and doing what they did, and setting up rules. And that way, I can control you, I can categorize you, I can put you in a... In, Jesus isn't interested in the rules we add to his word. Now, let me be quick to specify. James 4.11 says we're not supposed to gossip. It's clear. Yeah, when, when we hear somebody gossiping, we, we need to call that out. That, that's a, a clear commandment that God gives. Ephesians 4.32, forgive one another. That's not negotiable. The principle is you've received infinite forgiveness. You you will forgive other people if you're a Christ follower. When I was pastoring in Arizona, there was a a man, he was a a World War II vet. It was a military town. And he had fought in the Pacific Theater. And one time he said, Andy, I I, I don't care what the Word of God says. I'm never going to forgive Japanese people, people of Japanese descent. 
Okay, my job is just to tell you what it says. I mean, and, and you won't answer to me. Right? That, that happens, that judgment happens way, way above my pay grade. But I'm telling you, if I read the word of God right, you, you won't, because why? You're violating a clear commandment. So I want to differentiate between that. But I want us to be careful about setting up our own rules and regulations. Because at the bottom of that, setting up rules and regulations is we want power. We want control. I want to be able to classify you and categorize you and do, do what's good and that. And, and, and so the root issue I want to get to is what are the areas in your life in which you need to cede power and control to the Lord? So, 21 and a half years ago, 22 years ago, I was in a job search that would eventually bring me here as a singles pastor to Lincoln Berean. And this position popped up, but it was percolating in the background. And initially I thought, no, because I want a position where, you know, I can exercise my gift of preaching. And my wife said, well, maybe, you know, some people at Lincoln Berean have figured out how to do church. Maybe it'd be good though and learn and then God could move you. No, I don't think so. No, no. no. I wasn't going to give up that power and control. Well, after nine months of nothing, I was pretty broken. And about that time, Berean calls and, and I'm willing to, I'm just crushed and I'm willing to, okay, God, whatever you want. The irony is within an Hiring on there within a year and a half, Brian Clark has talked to me about leading the Northside Church Plant. He said, Andy, I'm going to put you up once, at least once a month at Lincoln Brand to get you exposure. But I think before I was ever going to get that, I had to die to my power and control. God, your way, your time. And I couldn't have scripted it any better. When he started told me that, I thought, are you kidding me? I'm going to get this kind of an opportunity to be in that church and then lead in that they didn't come, though, friends, until I said, okay, God, your way, your time. I'm wondering, at the root of these little laws we add to the Bible, is, is this desire for power and control, are there areas of your life that you can't let go? It's your job. It's your dating life. I mean, you've been single a long time, and you, you just kind of want to take things into your own hand. It's, it's your friend group. These people are not good for you, but to trust God for another group of friends. Uh, what is it? Well, you need to say, God, I submit. Where is your desire for power and control showing in that you're developing these kind of rules and regulations that you think define you or define somebody else. Jesus isn't interested in our rules and regulations. He works in spite of them. Let's make sure we're not like the Pharisees in our desire for power and control, not seeing that tradition is blinding us to God himself. So when I went up to orientation to Texas a and my freshman year and then this optional thing called fish camp that summer, I heard all about bonfire. And the last football game of the year, we'd play the University of Texas. That was our arch rival. And we'd build this 60-foot high bonfire that symbolized our burning desire to beat TU. And then we referred to them as TU, as Texas University, because we were the University of Texas, don't you know, at Texas A&M. So my freshman year, I went out to cut. You'd go out, and you'd 
logs and you'd load them on a truck and then they'd haul them into campus. And then there was another group that would haul them from the drop point to the stack. And I, and I cut and I, I, I carried, but I never got on the stack. And I remember looking at the stack and it was, this was my sophomore year. And this thing went about 60 feet up in the air. And what they do is they get a bunch of trees and they'd wire them together and then they'd cut it off and they'd build another layer. And it was about four layers up. And I had my first chemical engineering class I got to know that prof pretty well, and it was in the middle of doing that. And I remember saying, Dr. Holstey, that doesn't look too stable. And I, I don't have his exact words, but he said, yeah, Andy, that's a tragedy waiting to happen. Like I said, 60 feet up, most of the people that were working on that thing were drunk. Well, it came and it went until... November 19th, 1998, at 2.42 a.m. in the morning, the stack gave out, and all those trees came crashing down on the people that were working there. Twelve were killed. Twenty-seven were injured. Why? Why did we keep building this thing? We supposedly had the biggest college of engineering. We had 13,000 engineering students. How many faculty? Why did we keep building this tragedy waiting to happen? Tradition. Tradition. Didn't you know it symbolized our burning desire to be to you? Twelve paid with their life. 27, had some kind of injury. After that, they stopped building the bonfire. Lesson learned a little late, don't you think? Especially if you're one of the parents of those 12 kids. We doing the same thing with religious tradition? Are we doing the same thing with spiritual rules? We're setting up stuff that makes us comfortable and this is how it is and this is what a Christian looks like and this is what he, she does and what he does and, you, and how he dresses and whatever. Underneath that's a desire for power and control. Please know Jesus isn't interested in our traditions and rules. How does he do those traditions and rules? He keeps working in spite of them. Jesus keeps working in spite of our religious traditions. Would you pray with me? Our Father in heaven, we're grateful for the truth of Scripture. And sometimes it's unsettling. Man, we love rules. We love control. We love to define what you haven't defined. And yet you were not constrained. You did not give us second thought to our rules and regulations. Lord, would you show us in our desire for control, our desire to be able to classify other people, to either be able to put people down, lift ourselves up, whatever it is, would you show us our rules and regulations and the fallacies of them? And underneath that, would you show us really what's there is this desire for power and control? And we would be willing to cede that to you. Lord, that we could celebrate your work in our lives, not pick it apart because some human regulation was broken. Pray all this in Christ's name.
Amen.